Chapter Six of the Ordeal of Elizabeth by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth drove again a few weeks later through shady, fragrant lanes on her way to Bassett Mills. It was early in the morning, but the sun was already hot. Wild roses along the roadside had mostly departed. The grass in the fields had a parched look. It was a long time since any rain had fallen, and the roads were thick with dust. All the freshness of the early summer had faded, but for these signs of premature blight and the scorching effect of the sun, Elizabeth seemed to have no eyes. She drove along in a happy dream. There was a brilliant color in her cheeks, a radiant light in her eyes. She bloomed like a rose that had unfolded every petal to the summer sunshine. The fields through which she passed were not the familiar pasture-lands and places that skirted the road to Bassett Mills. They were the flowery meadows of poetic Arcadia, on the road that led to Paradise. It was something of a bore under the circumstances that she must first of all go to Bassett Mills, but Miss Joanna had entrusted her with numerous commissions that she could not very well refuse to discharge. That was the reason why she had started so early. There was a brook in a meadow nearby, a brook shaded by weeping willow trees, under which nowadays a young artist sat sketching for many hours at a time. Elizabeth's drives or walks had for the last few weeks led no further, but to-day she had decided to go first to Bassett Mills and be back in time for the usual engagement, of which her aunts knew nothing. The affair was not really so clandestine. There was no reason why she should have kept it a secret, beyond a vague embarrassment, an unwillingness to speak about the one subject that occupied her thoughts. Miss Cornelia and Miss Joanna had, after the one protest, yielded to the inevitable. They had not even discouraged young Halleck's visits to their niece. They had gone so far as to admit, when he had come to tea at the homestead, and sung and played for them afterward, for hours, that he was an extremely talented young man. It had been a most successful evening. Miss Joanna had not even gone to sleep, and yet, with it all, in both sisters there was some innate distrust, some lingering prejudice, perhaps, that prevented them from succumbing entirely to the charm of his handsome face and beautiful voice. They were civil to him, painfully civil, but they did not welcome him as they would have welcomed young Frank Courtenay, who used to stare at Elizabeth in church every Sunday, but had never apparently mustered up courage to come and see her. He was much under the influence of his mother, who considered Elizabeth's hair conspicuous, and had remarked that it was bad taste for a young girl to be too well-dressed, a fault that could not in justice be alleged against her own daughters. Elizabeth, too, might have welcomed the visits of young Courtenay. There had been times when she had doubted, sadly, if she was really so pretty as the girls at school had seemed to think. But these times were past, and she had not a thought to spare for Frank Courtenay's heavy, commonplace good looks. Paul Halleck had assured her many times that she was beautiful, and had sketched her in every variety of pose, in that impressionistic style which Elizabeth had secretly thought rather ugly, before she learned to regard it as the last word in art. Elizabeth had learned many other things in the last few weeks. Halleck undertook her education in all artistic and literary matters, showing her how little she had hitherto known of this or that great light. He quoted Swinburne and Rossetti. He read her extracts from Maeterlinck and Ibsen. 
he opened for her the treasures of that school which Nordahl calls degenerate. He had all the intellectual and artistic jargon of the day at his tongue's end. She sat at his feet and devoutly learned it all. She knew his history now. It was very romantic, and it lost nothing in the telling. He had a keen eye for artistic effect, and spared not one sordid detail of his early surroundings, which served to throw into more brilliant relief his subsequent career. He told how the possession of a lovely childish soprano had raised him literally from the gutter, and procured him a position as a boy soloist in a Chicago church, and how later on a patron was found, who sent him abroad to study. He had wandered from one European center to another, learned to play in Dresden, and to paint in Paris, and developed a fine baritone voice, of which great things were prophesied. In fact, he was a universal genius, and could do anything, except apparently earn a living, which indeed has always been hard for genius. And so at last he drifted back to Chicago, where he sang for a while in the same church where he had begun his career, but finally left for some reason or another, and tried his fortune in New York. He was debating now whether to go abroad again to study in earnest for the stage, and meanwhile he was on a walking tour, sketching about the country. He had come to Bassett Mills for the sake of old associations, and had stayed. Well, he left it to Elizabeth to imagine why he stayed. All this was very interesting and romantic. Far more so, Elizabeth thought, than any ordinary affair could have been with some commonplace youth of the neighborhood. She had only one regret. She could not help wishing in her heart that Paul's early surroundings had been, if not more exalted, less familiar. She would have preferred him to have no associations with, and no friends at, Bassett Mills. The place seemed to her, as she drove through it that morning, so hopelessly common, so unusually prosaic. The ugly, sordid houses, the people with their faces of dull stolidity, jarred upon the ecstatic tone of her mood. She could not imagine that genius could be born in such surroundings. The discordant note was still more striking when, having discharged the greater part of her commissions, she entered the dry-goods shop and found Aunt Rebecca in her most trying humor. "'So that's you, Elizabeth,' she said, looking her niece severely up and down, while her thin lips moved at the corners. "'Seems to me you're very dressed up, driving round these dusty roads. The way you wear white is a caution. But I suppose for a millionaire like you it don't matter about the washing.' Elizabeth bit her lip. "'I'm not a millionaire, you know, Aunt Rebecca,' she said. "'But I like to wear white, and it's as cheap as anything in the end. "'Is Amanda in?' she added quickly, anxious to stave off further criticism. "'I'll go back and see her if she is.' "'She's in the parlor,' said Amanda's mother shortly. "'She's got a headache. I guess she don't feel like seeing company,' she added hastily. But the words came too late. Elizabeth had already left the shop and was crossing the narrow, dark little hall that led to the parlor. Her heart beat rapidly as she did so. She felt an odd, utterly irrational desire to feast her eyes on the spot where she had first experienced such new and delightful sensations. There was no music in the room now, no air of festivity. The atmosphere was close and musty. The sun poured in at the window beside which Amanda sat sewing. She bent closely over her work. Her skin was more pasty than ever, and her eyes were red and swollen. Elizabeth remembered her aunt's words about the headache, otherwise she might have thought that her cousin had been crying. 
She went over and kissed her with a friendliness born of her own superabundant joy. The lips she touched were dry and hot. Amanda did not respond to the caress. She stared stupidly at Elizabeth, as if dazed by her sudden entrance. "'How are you, Amanda?' Elizabeth said. "'I'm sorry you have a headache. Perhaps it's the heat. It's a terribly hot day, and the roads are so dusty. Aunt Rebecca implied that my dress showed that very plainly. It was clean this morning. Does it really look so badly?' She walked over to the mirror and inspected herself critically, setting her hat straight and adjusting the white ribbon about her throat. It was a long, narrow glass, framed in black walnut, and there was a shelf underneath it which supported a large seashell. The whole thing reminded her of a similar arrangement at her dressmaker's in town, and seemed in some way the crowning feature of the prosaic, painfully respectable character of the room. She hated to look at herself there. The glass brought out all one's defects. But to-day, in spite of the trying glare of the sunshine, her own image flashed back at her, so brilliantly fresh, in her white dimity gown, so redolent of health and beauty, that she could not help smiling back at it, as at some delightful apparition. Ah, yes, it was good to be young and pretty, and to have a lover waiting for one nearby. Her eyes brightened unconsciously, and she gave a little caressing touch to the shining masses of wavy hair, which stood out like red molten gold against the broad brim of her shady white hat. The other girl sat and watched her. "'You like to look at yourself, don't you?' The words rang out harshly and suddenly. Elizabeth started and turned around. It seemed to her for a moment as if some third person had spoken, someone with a strange, mocking voice that she had never heard before. But there was no one else in the room. "'Yes, you like to look at yourself,' Amanda went on after a pause more quietly. "'You think yourself a beauty, and a good many people perhaps might agree with you.' He tells you so, I suppose. I dare say he tells you your hair is picturesque. He used to tell me that about mine. He was going to paint my picture, but it went right out of his head when he saw you. Most things did, I guess. He—he he hasn't been here since. The girl's voice broke off in a quick convulsive sob, and she stopped for a moment, but went on almost immediately. If you hadn't come in that day, it would have been all right. We were keeping company. Every one in the mills knew we were. All the girls were jealous of me, as if he'd have looked at them. Some of them work in the factory. There's many of them don't even have a piano and sit in their kitchens. I know what's genteel, even if I can't talk all that rubbish about music and Wagner that you learned at school. And what good will all that do when you're married? What do you know about mending and sewing and cooking? What sort of wife would you make him? You'd ruin him in a month with your fine clothes, but men are such fools. She gave a short, mirthless laugh. Her eyes glittered strangely. Elizabeth stared at her, paralyzed, glued to the spot in helpless fascination. She had never heard Amanda talk so much before. Her words came quickly, fiercely, one upon the other, like some overwhelming torrent that had been suddenly let loose. Why should you have so much more than me? Why should you have fine clothes and a carriage, and go to school in New York, and have the swells in the neighborhood call on you? Was your mother any better than mine, or even a hundredth part as good? She wasn't even respectable. No decent people at the mills would speak to her before your father married her. I know that for a fact. And then to give yourself airs. 
Amanda stopped short, panting, exhausted by her own vehemence. Elizabeth stood still before her, powerless. When Amanda spoke of her mother, the color rushed into her white face, and she made an effort to speak, but the words seemed to die away on her lips. Amanda, after a moment's pause, went on. "'It isn't that I care so much about that. You might have everything else if you hadn't taken him. Why did you come in that day looking like a dressed-up doll? You hadn't been here for weeks, and I was so glad. I didn't want him to know you. I wasn't afraid of the other girls, but you, who've got so much, couldn't you have had the decency to leave him alone? Couldn't you see that he was mine?' "'Amanda!' Elizabeth gasped out. "'I—' I didn't know. I never thought. Her brain reeled. She stammered painfully, trying in vain for words to vindicate herself from this shameful charge. Amanda brushed her aside contemptuously. You didn't think? No, you never do, of anything but yourself, your pretty face and pretty clothes. You're selfish and spoiled, and everyone knows it. You've had every wish granted till you want everything— and you won't be satisfied with less. But what's the good of saying all this to you?" She broke off suddenly with a sharp change of tone. I must be crazy. I felt so, I'm sure, these last weeks. It won't make any difference. Nothing I can say will bring him back. And yet he'd have married me if you hadn't come. She went to Elizabeth and gripped her by the wrist. He kissed me once, she said. Has he kissed you yet? No said Elizabeth mechanically. No! She shrank away a little and set her teeth. Amanda's grasp was painful, but she would not have cried out for the world. Well, when he does, Amanda said, you remember this. He kissed me first. You can't take that away from me. I have the first claim. She let go of Elizabeth's hands and fell back a step. There were two deep red marks from her grasp. "'Now go,' she said. "'Go to him. I know you were going to him. I saw you thinking of it, and it made me hate you. Go to him and tell him that I hope his love for you will last as long as it did for me.' She laughed again harshly, and then suddenly burst into violent weeping. "'Oh, it's ignominious,' she said. "'It's contemptible. No one can despise me more than I do myself.' I haven't any pride. I hate him. I hate him. Yet I'd take him back now if he'd come to me. She sank down on the sofa and hid her face in the red plush cushions, while her whole frame shook with convulsive sobs. Elizabeth stood still in the middle of the floor. Mechanically she glanced at her reflection in the mirror, white, distraught, with startled eyes, a ghastly parody of the brilliant vision which had smiled back at her only a few minutes before. The hot sunlight flooding the commonplace little room seemed to bring out with glaring vividness all the tragic, sordid elements of the scene. A quarrel between two women about a lover? Could anything be more hopelessly vulgar and grotesque? It was the sting of this thought that finally roused Elizabeth to speech. She raised her head with sudden haughtiness, and her words came out clearly and fluently. "'I don't know what you mean by this scene, Amanda,' she said. "'If there is any one whom you—you you think I've taken from you, you can have him back to-morrow, so far as I'm concerned. 
I don't want any other woman's lover. It—it would be base. Whatever else you think of me, I'm not that. If it is Paul Halleck whom you mean, you can marry him, if you wish, to-morrow. At least you may be sure of one thing, that I never will. Her low, vehement voice died away, and she waited for an answer. But none came. Amanda only sobbed on hysterically, her face buried in the sofa cushions. Elizabeth stood looking at her for a moment, with a feeling in which pity, anger, and repulsion were strangely mingled. Then she hastily left the room by the door that led directly to the street. She had presence of mind enough to avoid the shop and her aunt's unfriendly eyes. She reached the carriage, and, unheard of thing, touched the white pony with the whip. End of chapter 6